three seconds to go across the timeline. Two seconds to go. Jenkins three, right wing to win it. He made it. He made the three for the right wing. That's the buzzer. Cats win it all. Cats win it all. Cats win it all. 31 years later, Villanova is the king of college basketball once again. So last week we started a new schedule, and I thought that the first week was smooth. Kind of the way we planned it or envisioned it, kind of set up that way perfectly. Mm-hmm. We executed it flawlessly. We did. Well, it's not going to happen this week. Oh, no. No. <laughs> because I think what happens is if you say to someone, we got to get this done by Wednesday with the hope that we can get it up Thursday. it'll go up on Thursday. Uh-huh. Then when you say to yourself, well, we got an extra day, so I'll tell them we don't have to get this up till Thursday, you should just know if you say that, that it's inevitably going to be Friday. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of clerical things. Um, so let me, let's me let take everyone through the week. Let's break down the fourth wall. Have we done that in a while? No, I don't think so. All right. So last week I started planning for this week. I've been using Evernote on my phone and trying to organize myself better. By any time a thought comes into my head, I just type it in the Evernote instead of hoping it, I retain it when I sit down to like do the agenda for the week. Sure, it's been working out pretty well. And like, I'll change the open three or four times a week. I'll change the order of three things three or four times a week. It's I think it'll be a, a better show for it ultimately. But when I first started planning the show, I knew two things. One, I wanted to try to get the Jonathan Abrams interview done and that David Shoemaker would be on because we talked about it before WrestleMania, long before that we'd talk again the week of WrestleMania. After. So, Jonathan Abrams and I recorded on Monday. He's going to be on the show today. That'll be the first interview after three things. Uh, he is the author of Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefine the NBA and spark the basketball revolution. That was done Monday. Okay. So, but it's about a book, so not exactly nothing that could be dated in there. Right. I felt totally safe doing that. Could have done it a month ago, honestly. Sure. Um. So on Wednesday, Wednesday morning, I figured. I don't know if David's going to be staying for Raw Monday, probably. And Tuesday, I'll probably have to travel, so I'll text him Wednesday. And we usually have had a pattern of recording on Thursday. So I text him Wednesday, and he gets back to me. He's like, hey, man, no spoilers, but I'm about to jump at midnight from ESPN to The Ringer, which is Bill Simmons' site. Okay. He's like, they're having me on the Simmons pod. Uh, They're dropping it at midnight and sending out tweets and stuff. It's like, I just filed my last ESPN column. He's like, I'm going to be in charge of all the art for the website, writing about wrestling and doing a wrestling podcast, and I'm moving to L.A. this month. I'm like, wow, congratulations, you know? Yeah. So, because he was, well, I think anyone who reads his stuff was disappointed with the way ESPN had used him post-Grantland. Right. I think they've only had two or three articles 
They've been basically just paying him to not work. Wow. You know, and do the Cheap Heat podcast with Peter Rosenberg, which is really popular in wrestling circles. So they probably figured that was enough for them. Mm-hmm. A popular podcast is enough to get out of this Grantland writer we really probably didn't want. Uh, which is so strange because ESPN has done so much with wrestling, especially during WrestleMania. You know, they had Brian Coachman live from Texas Jerry Jones Stadium all day Sunday. So Shoemaker wasn't sure how much time Simmons would want kind of his announcement on that Ringer podcast to kind of stand alone. Um, so we're either going to talk tomorrow or I'm just going to give him a week. Okay. You know, I'm not going to pressure him too much. Uh, so we're going to do three things. Then we have the Jonathan Abrams interview. We're going to do a book club. My brother and I have been talking about getting him on during the year to do some golf corresponding. Okay. So kind of before tournaments, we might talk to him, get Damon Hack on after tournaments. What we really have Damon on is really our only golf guy right now. And it's hard to get Damon all four times during – it's a bit much to ask him to come on four, four times, times during year. one golf season. Right. So I thought maybe we could have some fun with Anthony, get him on, talk a little golf. Uh, the Frozen Four is this weekend as well. So after the book club, it'll either be Anthony and I doing a quick segment plus then the Mass Man interview or just Anthony and I and we'll get Mass Man next week. So that's basically what we'll do there. Uh, then Don and I will finish it up with one last thing. So, you know, look at this podcast is and always will be fluid from time to time. Right. Because, unfortunately, we can't be everyone's first priority. And when someone... <laughs> when Grantland calls? When it's a... Or when a yeah, Simmons calls? When it's a basically a WWE-WCW-type feud between Simmons and ESPN, and one of the guys leaves to go to the other, I can respect that they might want that announcement and that guy to be exclusive for a couple of days, I think. Oh, sure. But we'll see. He, he still might. We still might do it tomorrow. All right. If not, we'll just we'll get it next week. It won't be a big deal. And hey, not only are we great friends with the editor at large, Brian Curtis at Ringer, we're now great friends with the uh, art director and um, wrestling podcaster and writer. So, congratulations, to David Shoemaker, the masked man. He's a great dude. So happy for him. Um, so let's uh, let's get started with our thing, though. We'll, we'll we'll kick it off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty, I'll kick it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, well, I can't wait to find out what Don was doing instead of watching the most epic finish of a national championship game in college basketball. Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember. I know I tuned to it when it was... Uh, in the first half at some point, I don't remember what channel I was watching it on or whose whatever feed I was watching it on, but yeah, I was telling you before we started, I don't know how to watch basketball. Like, I'm just, I'm just not a basketball fan. Well, um, my friend Eric was over most of the weekend. Uh, we were kind of nerding out on wrestling. We watched uh, NXT on Friday, the Hall of Fame on Saturday, WrestleMania on Sunday, and... Raw on Monday. I was burnt out of wrestling. Uh, but it was nice. I had wrestling on the first TV. I had the basketball on the second TV. 
and basically wrestling ended and there was five minutes left in the basketball game. So I switched over to the main TV and we watched the ending play out. It was incredible. It's the first time that an NCAA championship game ever was won at the buzzer with a jump shot. What have they been won with before? Like free there throws was one, or something? There was one that was won at the buzzer when the guy had the air ball. Houston. Or no, NC State. Guy shot the shot. It was an air ball and the guy caught it and was put back. Mm, so okay. I guess that's a layup, not a jump shot. Sure. Then um, and there hasn't been that many decided at the buzzer. Right, right. Jordan won one with a jump shot, but after it went in, there's still like a second left or something. I got you. You know, so this is the first time. And that's uh, according to Jack McCollum. Or no. Yeah, was it McCollum? Someone was on this. Oh, it was Bob Ryan from okay. the Boston Globe. Um, was was tracking that, and he definitively said it's the first time. So I'm going to trust his judgment yeah, I believe there. It. Uh, it was a great game. It really was. Illinois had a great weekend. Um, they beat Oklahoma by a record margin, the largest blowout in the history of the Final Four. And blowouts are common in that game because I think teams, when they know they don't have it, they quit and mandate, oh, you quit. Oh, yeah. I mean, when that game that game started to get out of hand, and Oklahoma did not want to be there anymore. Syracuse got blown out, too, didn't they? They did. So it wasn't a good... Uh... No, it was a bad start to the weekend, and that's that's not unusual, I don't think, for the Final Four. Yeah. Uh, but it was a great championship game. It was a great, great tournament. A really great start, really great first weekend. Maybe slow in the middle there, and then it went out with a bang. I don't think anyone came close to having a perfect bracket this year. No. Only 2.1% of all the brackets had Villanova as champion Yes, yeah, so on ESPN. It, those sure, stats are hard because right, there's right. so many different people doing it. Yeah, I'm sure someone can, someone's whatever sister-in-law that they forced to be in the poll probably won it. But, uh, yeah, Villanova was a two-seed. Wouldn't have been a crazy to pick them as a champion. Right, but picking Syracuse to go that far, and there was a big upset in the first round. I can't remember who. but Yeah, well, Michigan State lost as a two. Okay, maybe that's the one. So that's probably the one. Yeah. And, you know, I think they were the second most picked to win it all behind Kansas. And Kansas didn't make the Final Four, obviously. Villanova got that spot. Yeah. So, great year for Oklahoma. Uh, obviously, an even better year for Villanova. Their national champions for the first time since 1985, which is cool. Uh, every time, Don, every time a team from college wins a national championship, I just love it. I think to the time when... Uh, I was there witnessing my brother win one, yeah. and that's not a bad thing at all. So I was glad for Villanova. It was a clutch shot. Uh, kid never doubted it. Just one, two, right into it, and jumper, smooth. Really cool ending. Uh, and one thing I love about the 2016 is that I spent the next two hours watching people's videos of it. <laughs> you know, from the front row, panoramic, right, right. from the... Watch party at the college, just right? Yeah, Deadspin did a, a cool thing with all the like official views of it, but yeah, like, different the, languages, right? Right, yeah. So that was great, and um, yeah. So now this weekend we'll we'll crown the, the hockey championship as well. Uh, Quinnipiac and Boston College they just started as we record on Thursday at five, uh, and then North Dakota and Denver will play tonight in the national championship game on Saturday. Baseball started. Did you notice? I heard. You heard. I did hear. So baseball started. We're about three games into the season. Uh, a couple of notable things. The Padres got swept by the Dodgers and, and have didn't yet to get score a run. run, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's, Good for them. That's an ouch. 
Uh, Kershaw was awesome uh, in his first game. Arietta was awesome. Sounds like people are hating on a new replay system. Or uh, yeah, replay in, in baseball and hockey and even football to some degrees. It's just a disaster. Yeah. So, I don't know what you do about that, but... Now, I... I know there's the rule now about breaking up double plays. Like you can't break them up the way you used to. Yeah, you got to you got to slide to the base, which I think is a good rule, kind of anyway. Like if you're not allowed to interfere with the play, I mean, purists probably will hate that I said that, but I, I don't know. It always seemed like a stupid play, kind of anyway. Like that it was okay just to slide cleats up, just take a guy out. And I heard someone that came up right away, like the yeah Batista in the Blue Jays and Blue Rays, Rays game. Right, yeah. He slid in. And he slid to the bag. It looked like a very clean slide. They called him out for his hand kind of hit the second baseman's foot mm. and then fouled through. It looked like a. they certainly set a precedent by making the call the way they did. I don't think that that was the intention. Yeah, that's a little. That's that's different. It was a really strange. It's not cleaning a guy out. I mean, if we played the replay of it, you can hear the, the, the announcers being like, nah, they're not overturning that. You know, that's clean. Nothing yeah. wrong there. His incidental contact with the hands of the foot, just kind of following through on the slide. He didn't raise his arm to do it or anything. So I was surprised, and that's why people are upset. Uh, but that's just one of those things we'll have to monitor as the season goes on. I mean, you can't decide if it's a good system after one call sure. one day. So. Yeah, and I I think I, as far as replay goes, I'm generally the type of person that wants to get things right. But I guess that's the problem I have with it, particularly like in football, uh, hockey. Like You would think that with all the cameras we have and high def, like they should be able to get every call exactly right without question, but it still seems like a lot of calls are questionable. And uh, there was a Sabres game where a goal was overturned or something the other day that I just thought, I don't, I don't understand that. Like the goalie interference one. Yeah. Yeah. Just didn't look like goalie interference really. Right. And if anything, it looked like the defender kind of pushed him into the goal, but right. stuff he like, never got into the blue paint and right. looked like the contact was after the puck even went in the net. So I'd be okay with replay if it just took all human error out of it. But I think the rules have too much gray area that even with replay, you're still going to have problems forever. One so. thing I like about the baseball system that the hockey system, for whatever reason, doesn't do is that the baseball system, it's still the umps communicating to a central location as opposed to the NHL situation where if it's a challenge, the refs who made the call have to go and overturn themselves. Yeah, and they're watching it on, like on an iPad. little tablet. Yeah, right. Uh, so it seems ridiculous. And they have a central place that reviews goals. And, and by the way, they can review it, make a call, then the team can challenge it, and the refs can overturn the call. Weird. So you could have a challenge on top of or a replay and then a challenge. Weird. Has that happened? I, I don't know if it's happened, but... It would be bizarre. That can happen. So, like, the command center can call down to review a goal... They can make a call, then the team can challenge. I think if you're going to have that command center in Toronto, just let them make the calls. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so we'll see. Baseball season's underway. I'm glad to have it back. I've already watched a few games. I, I paid 20 bucks, I think, for the season to get the premium part of their app. And it's cool because at the end of every day, you can watch highlights from all the games or you can watch like condensed versions of the games. What's the story this year? Going into this year, what's... Well, the story is probably can the Cubs end there. Yeah, I've heard they're a big favorite. You know, they're streaked. They're the favorites in Vegas. Um, the Mets are right there as well. They're definitely the better of the two New York teams. And they have the great young pitching staff, the four studs. 
so what about the Mets and how they compare to the Cubs? This is probably the two favorites in the National League. Of course, it's an even year. The last three even years, the Giants have won the World Series. Oh, that's weird. And the Giants will be a, a contender again this year. They have a great squad coming back. The Dodgers uh, look good as well. So that's the National League. And I think in the American League, well, what about the Royals? The defending champs, they've looked good so far. They beat the Mets two out of three to start. Uh, so the Royals are, are again, a team that I think has been undervalued a little bit at the start by people who analyze baseball for whatever reason. Okay. Um, and uh, Houston, I mean, they made the playoffs last year. That seemed to have a schedule. Uh, so where do they, how do they progress? Um, and, you know, we're going to have to get someone even smarter than me to to go beyond that because I'm interested as well as always. So yeah, I know that's usually one of your questions to yeah. like a Jeff Passan or somebody. Yeah, to me, so what are they? Maybe watching? a little bit more than casual baseball fan. Those are the things I'm interested in. So we'll find out what uh, what Jeff or uh, Jonah or Ben Ryder, whoever we get in the near future. I reached out to Verducci, and the thing with Verducci is you email him, and then at some point he emails you back. Completely ignoring anything you said about when <laughs> he tells you when you're av- he's available and if you want to do it with him you do it. There you go. So we'll see if Verducci is on in the future too. Any notable players on uh, farewell tours this year? Um, I don't think we what don't do you think about Jeter or Rivera type or Kobe talk- Bryant. Yeah, have we ever talked about that on the air? Oh, you know what? There is one. David Ortiz. Okay. Yeah, David Ortiz is absolutely starting his. How do you feel about that? I don't have a problem with it. No, you don't. Nah. Steve Smith last year and. Now, I think if you're going to do it and it's going to be a grand scale thing, the guy better be great. Sure. It better be Derek Jeter or Kobe Bryant or yeah, David I mean, Ortiz, yeah. a generational player at least on his team. That's fair. So I would I don't know if Steve Smith qualifies in my book. Yeah. But it's a much shorter season and sure. who cares. But, uh, you know, I don't mind it. I don't – Some it's silly to some degree, but, you know, for the most part it's – I guess kind if, of behind the scenes at the parks. Yeah, I guess if rock bands could have farewell tours. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a huge problem with it. Sure. All right, last thing. So it is the last week of the NHL season, and there's about a week and a half left in the NBA season. They're usually about a week behind. Um, there's not much left to be decided in the NHL. The Detroit in the East, Detroit, Philadelphia, and Boston. There's two spots for those teams. There's three of them. Yeah, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but that's because of the wild card, the new system, that there's really no, there's not a lot of uh, competition there because you're only fighting for whatever, two spots. Do you like that? Or do you like the old it wouldn't system? have mattered this year. No? No. I got to get It'd back be into the, the same. I mean, the next best team, Carolina, has 86 points, so they wouldn't be fighting for it no matter what. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Boston's the only one. It's anywhere. It's Boston and Philly. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So we'll switch to the West in a second and see if it matter there. But no, I think that's the system has been fine so far. Um, I think. I think last year maybe in the West there might have been more teams in one division than the other. Right. Um, but no, I mean, I think the hope was to kind of focus on divisions a little bit more. The, the system kind of needs more time. Um, it does seem like. Uh, goal differential is becoming more and more of a stat that you can look at to predict playoff teams. Uh, there's probably only going to be one one in the East that with a negative goal differential, maybe That's two. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Philadelphia three, yeah. sneaks in, but if they don't, Boston gets in. Then it would only be the one. 
The Sabres were uh, minus 114 in goal differential last year. And they yeah. cut that to minus 20. Look, I love the Sabres. They I had love, a great year. I love the uh, path they've taken. And on the way over here, I heard Paul Hamilton talking about the Sabres and how they've scored like 55 more goals than they did all of last season. And they've got two games to go still. I don't want to compare the Sabres too much to maybe the worst hockey team of all time. <laughs> so, uh, yes, they've improved, uh, and I think they've looked good. But when you have the worst hockey team of all time, you got a long, and way you to only go, have one one sure. year to change it, right? One off season, uh, I, and they made huge strides, and they had two pieces they counted on. We're counting on do nothing. What do you think of? So, I heard an interview. It might have been Eichel talking today right now their record is 35 34 35 and 11 yeah they're on a 93 point pace in the second half of the year they're talking about finishing the season with a winning record would you consider 36 35 and 11 a winning record yes it is in the nhl now. yeah it's weird yep. yep uh that's the one thing i tell people that are a little bit down on the sabers is they were horrendous in shootouts this year like if they even get somewhere toward the middle of that and get a few wins there then you're up probably three or four more points and yeah, I think they were good this year, too. Uh, I think the goalies were surprisingly good. Yeah. The West has eight teams set. All eight are positive goal differential. No Canadian teams this year. No Canadian teams at all. All of the teams in the West with a positive goal differential are in the playoffs. All the teams with a negative goal differential are out. Yep. So I don't know if there's a Calgary in the playoffs this year, a team that just totally outplayed their analytics to get in. And if there is one, it might be Chicago. Who, yeah, their possession numbers supposedly are really down. Yeah, but I don't know if you can count anything Chicago does in the regular season. Yeah, right. They're just not built for that. Who cares anyway? And they're right. such a they they have they're forced to change and adjust because of their cap number that they use the regular season for that. You know. Yeah. Right. Sure. So, and uh, I mean, are, I don't think are, there's are really anybody. About, are we worried about Pat Kane or Jonathan Taves possessing the puck in the playoffs? I don't think so. No, and I don't. I mean, I'd be curious. I mean, if you're really going to criticize them for that, I'd be curious how they play against the other playoff teams. You know what I mean? Because, like... Well, and hey, they could go out in the first round. They're sure. going to have St. Louis. Yeah, there's nobody bad, like you said, in the West because yeah. nobody really snuck in. They're going to uh, have St. Louis or Dallas in the first round. I'm not sure anybody really snuck in in the East either. Maybe the Islanders, but, I mean, they've been okay for a while. And I think Florida is just finally where they, they should be. Like, yeah, I think if anyone team. sneaks in, it'll, it'll be Boston. Okay. You know, if they get They it. would be a surprise, I yeah. think. They kind of had a fire sale a little bit. And... But, yeah, so it should be a good playoff. So looking forward to that. The NBA, the the record's going to come down to if Golden State can win out. Yeah, I'm feeling like... They finally won it, lost a couple home games. They lost one. They were up by seven or they something. They lost two too. home games this week. So they're 69-9 and nine going into the last four games. They have four, two against San Antonio. I feel like at best this year, they were something like a 60% to beat that record, they, it's got to be way down. Now. Well, they're at the exact same pace as the Bulls. They're both 69-9. and nine. There's four oh, games. Oh, really? Yeah, there are four games left. They either win them all and beat it, or they lose one and tie it, or they lose two and fall below it. Do you happen to know off the top of your head what the record was when the Bulls were going for it? Like the previous record that they broke? No. Yeah. I, I just feel like it's a lot of pressure now. I, I don't feel like they do it. I, I have to check their schedule, I guess, to see what. Two they- against San Antonio. Two uh, against teams a lot worse than San Antonio. Yeah, it's gonna the question be is: Was San Antonio going to play those games heads up? Because they might not. You okay. know how San Antonio, yeah, is creative they were criticized about for that using the their bench right. and things. Yep. So 
there's no saying what San Antonio brings to the floor. San Antonio is 39 and 0 at home. Yeah, so, so they maybe have they want to see if they can get, you know, because technically they're only three games out of first. The Warriors were undefeated at home. Yeah, till this week. Till this week, and they've lost yeah. two already, or two since then. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're running out of gas. Maybe it's just maybe it's just too much pressure to be uh, the best team ever. Cleveland is first in the East again. Although I don't know that anyone's super hyped on them. Toronto is second. Yeah, someone that's clearly not a basketball fan. All I've heard. It's just reading headlines is what a mess Cleveland is and how it looks like LeBron might be getting another coach fired. and Or maybe he leaves again. And, but and, they're, again, and there they are at the top of the league. Yeah, we know it's a weaker league. I mean, there's nothing like having a Golden State, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, one, two, three, right in the West. Yeah, they're so, probably the three best teams in the league. You know, and then the Clippers are sitting right behind that at four. So, uh, yeah, yeah so playoffs in the NBA and NHL will start soon, and we love that because... Then for the next two months, number one and first things is we know where we're going. <laughs> yeah. What happened in the playoffs this week? And it always makes picking highlights out easier, too. Sure. There's always NHL overtimes or basketball buzzer beaters to play for a highlight. All right, so that's three things. We're going to take a break, and we will come back and talk to Jonathan Abrams. All right, our next guest is a graduate of the University of Southern California. Before becoming the most beloved columnist at Grantland, he wrote for both the Los Angeles and New York Times. Today he covers the NBA for ESPN.com and is the author of a New York Times bestselling book. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jonathan Abrams. How's it going, Jonathan? Good, I love it. You got my song going. That's a dramatic one. It's <laughs> the best fight song ever. <laughs> that is dramatic. I was like, wow, is this ever going to start? <laughs> it's like the For Whom the Bell Tolls of fight songs, I think. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, thanks for being here today. Appreciate it. Ah, no problem at all. Yeah, here. yeah I really enjoyed the book. Um, is it sick of me that I sort of enjoyed... I sort of, for some reason, was more interested in the stories that didn't work out. The, the um, oh, what's the guy's name that I, the book finishes with Tony, um, Tony Key. Yeah, the Tony Keys of the world just sort of interested me a little bit more than the Kobe Bryant's for some reason. Maybe just because their stories aren't as known or something, you know. Yeah, I mean that's uh, for me. Those are the more interesting stories to write. We we know about Kobe, we know about LeBron James, but we don't really know about Corleone Young or Lenny Cook or or Tony Keith. And they've lived their whole life kind of out of stardom, and they peaked when they were eighteen, nineteen years old. And it's almost like, how do you go living on with that, having that fame and and popularity and assured richness lost forever when you're that young in age and you still have the rest of your life before you. Yeah, I think it's more relatable, too, in some degree, because, like, I can relate to peaking at 19 myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more than I can um, 
being an NBA star. But I don't know. Did you – and I started to pick up on some things. But researching the book and writing the book, did you find something in common with the success stories as compared to the failures and vice versa? Uh, were there things that just would always come up in the success and things that would always come up in the – and I guess the opposite of that. I feel bad saying failures because I don't know that they're all failures. But maybe from a basketball sense, I, anyway. Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of different uh, impacts and influences on why guys succeeded and why they didn't. There's a lot of different variations uh, in their past. I would say that one of the almost constant uh, things that kept popping up over and over was that. But, so when you're in high school, your your day is really regimented. You're going from class to class. You're going to practice. You're usually going home and doing homework, and you're repeating the cycle the next day. Well, if you get drafted into the NBA out of high school, suddenly your your day is almost wide open. You're only going to practice for a couple hours during the day. If it's your first time having money, having all the time in the world to spend it and, and use it, and it's your first time in adulthood, I mean, I don't know for you, but for me that would have been a recipe for disaster, and that was kind of the recipe for disaster for some of these guys who weren't necessarily ready physically, emotionally, mentally for this huge next step in their lives. And I think the ones who were able to succeed were just mentally strong and mature beyond their years, where guys like Kobe, LeBron, KG used all that extra time to work on their craft and work on their games and improve uh, by leaps and bounds, where other guys likely didn't have that type of discipline and dedication. Yeah, you know, it's amazing to me, too, when you read read some of the different stories. And it's unbelievable how when it starts to rain for some of these guys, man, does it pour. You know what I mean? It's like, it's never just like, oh, well, basketball didn't work out, but, you know, they ended up leaving the game, going back to school. I mean, now they're million-dollar lawyers or something like that. It's always like more like Tony's story we talked about where it's, well, he didn't get into school. He he had kids early. His sisters were murdered. Um, You know, his mom and dad are separated, and his mom has a job. You know, just like. It just seems like when it doesn't work out, you know, one of the really sad and human parts of the book which makes it so great is it just really goes off the rails for these guys. And it's just, it's really, it's really disappointing. And man, it makes you, it, it's what makes the book great, I think. It's just how human the stories are. And I mean, man, it's a, it's a book of extremes though. Yeah. I mean, well, they had to try to tell the, the good, the bad, and the ugly to be able to, to tell the whole story. And, you know, these guys all started almost at a common denominator where they were looked on as phenoms as the next big thing in the NBA. And at some point, kind of their, their past just diverged. And I think for a lot of these guys, this was almost like a, like an urban lottery ticket. It was their one kind of definable way to escape this life of, possible hardship or possible disarray that they had to jump on it as soon as possible and that's why i think a lot of them did jump jump for that contract or jump to try to get to the nba as quickly as possible and kind of put everything else into the second tier of what they had to deal with like you know i can worry about if i'm ready for this later i got to do this as soon as possible to kind of help pull my family uh up with me I was thinking about I was thinking about um about you and I was like he's kind of like 
He's kind of like Bunny Colvin in season three of The Wire when he would take people around the Western District after Amsterdam. It was like mm-hmm. you would show us this beautiful part of the neighborhood where kids were riding bikes and and neighbors were sweeping the sidewalk and it was such a glorious part of the experiment. It's like Bunny would always take everyone there and that would be like the Kobe's and the LeBron's. You know, and then after a few minutes of that and this great smile on everyone's faces, Bunny would be like, All right, now I gotta show you the bad and he would take them to Hamsterdam and that was like the the other part of the book. You know, and that, yeah, that, no, that's a great point. It's it, with the good, you have to have the bad and the ugly. Yeah, and it just reminded me of that, like the Hamsterdam experiment. But, um, you know, I was thinking about the NBA right now, like the league today, and who the best players are and what their paths were. You know, you think about someone like Steph Curry, who has one of the more random paths to superstardom of an NBA player. I mean, despite being a second-generation NBA player, he wasn't all that recruited out of high school. He went to Davidson, uh, where he started his run, and then you know he's like the third or fourth point guard in the draft, despite being a top ten pick. I mean, one team, Minnesota, even took two point guards uh, <laughs> that weren't him. Uh, and then you know, next thing you know, he's he's a super. You know, he's arguably the best player in the world. You know, and then there's someone like LeBron James in the East. Uh, you know, who's obviously a big part of your book, who who went right to high school. And then there's even someone like Blake Griffin, maybe, who spent two years in college at Oklahoma in the middle. Um, it goes to show you that there's no right way to do this. Um, but I wonder, as someone who has researched this book and told these stories, if you had a son that was playing basketball, a potential superstar basketball player, what would you want him to do? What What do you, what do you think is the is the best path for someone with this kind of talent? It's a tough question. Uh, because, I mean, the reality of the system is the longer that people stay in college, the longer the scouts have to pick apart their games and find stuff that they don't like. And it, it, I mean, I don't think there's really an argument that staying in college hurts your draft stuff. Because it's, it's true. Um, that's why guys are always trying to leave as soon as possible. So if it's going to be if you can come out of high school and you're the best player, you're going to try to come out of high school. If it's a one-and-done system, you're going to come after you do your, you can't even call it one year, but you're going to come after you do your couple months in college. Right. Uh, so, I mean, if I had a son, or, I mean, I do have a son. I don't know whether he'll be an uh, incredible basketball player, but um, I, it's, it's really tough to say, man. I don't I don't know, because you want to see him be able to get that college education. You know that this... Uh, whether he's an incredible NBA player or not, you know, the most, the longest it's going to last is, is a, a decade or so. And then you still have so much of the rest of your life to, to live after that. So, I mean, it's, it's a tough question to answer. What do you think the rule should be? Because, of course, right now we have the rule where it's the one year. You know, um, in football, that's three years after your graduating high school class. You know, in hockey... It's a little bit more open. You know, there's the draft year. Um, so you obviously can't be in the NHL before that. But I mean, the NHL this year, of course, is littered with 19-year-olds like Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid and uh, Larkin, Dylan Larkin, all kinds of 18. So, I mean, really open system there. Um, what do you think uh, the rules should be in basketball and sports in general? What, what makes you the most comfortable? I mean, for basketball... Uh, specifically, I would love to see like a baseball type rule, 
where guys would have to go to the guys, guys could jump. If you're that talented like Ben Simmons or, or LeBron or it's just obvious what your career is gonna be, you should be able to make that jump and in that fashion you can acclimate to the NBA quicker. It helps the NBA, you become a superstar quicker, they can market you quicker. You know, I think just think it was a sham what happened this year with Ben Simmons. It's not like this time next year he's going to be a chemist. He's going to he's going to be an NBA player, right? And you know, going to college for a couple months didn't help him. It didn't help LSU's program. They didn't even make the tournament. It, you just look at who it helped, and I don't think it helped anybody, which is ridiculous. Except maybe uh, the LSU athletic department for a couple months, because how much money they make, right? But you know, in that same sense, if you do go to college and if you make that decision, I think you should have to go for at least two years. And in that way, you're really, really close or you're a lot closer toward getting your college degree. If you do want to, want to come back to school, you know, it's good for the college programs to have that continuity of at least a couple seasons with the same group, uh, in, in tow. Um, but I, I can't ever see it actually happening that way because it almost makes too much sense. <laughs> yeah, and I think with the second year, too, I mean, you force them to be a college student to some degree, right? Because like you yeah. said, it's not even a true year now because, I mean, once you're eligible after the first semester, there's really no reason to ever go to class again if you don't plan on coming back, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, Ben Simmons wasn't even eligible for the Wooden Award. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Ben Simmons is a really strange case, you know, just especially if you look at the two best you know, true freshman this year between him and Ingram. You know, Ingram at least went to Duke, and, you know, there there was some success in basketball. I mean, Simmons, you can maybe make an argument, lost his – went to college, and it might have cost him a spot in the draft, you know, if anything. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe not, but, I mean, we're, you know, that, that that's a real possibility. He could be the number two pick, like – so, I mean, college probably cost him a spot in this sense, which is really, really interesting. But then, you know, there's someone like Buddy Heald, and I wanted to ask you about this because um, they have kind of loosened the rules about how you can inquire about your draft status and then still be able to go back. Um, you know, and Buddy Heald last year had this decision and inquired, and, you know, he got back, a, I think, a late one, two-round rating from the board or whatever, and he decided to come back into Oklahoma and, he maybe played himself into the lottery this year. Um, you know, maybe if uh, this weekend it went better, who knows? Maybe we're talking about Buddy Heal being a top three pick. Maybe he still will be. I don't know. But, um, you know, he's another example of how there's just so many paths. And um, it almost seems silly to make people, to force people to choose one because, you know, what was good for Buddy Heald wasn't necessarily good for Ben Simmons. Exactly. And I think... It's always a, a case by case basis, and I think one this, the one and done rule is not insisted upon for with the player in mind by any means of the word. I mean, this is a a rule in place for the executives who don't want to make bad decisions projecting where guys are going to be years from now. They want to see these players against better competition. They want to see them another year develop. So this isn't this rule isn't made in mind for players to hey get a little bit of college and and educate yourself. No, it's not made with that in mind. It's made for these lead executives to be able to try and make better decisions. You know, I think if we were going to have rules in mind to help uh, these college athletes or these student athletes coming out of high school, then we would allow them to have 
every type of range of possibility that could fit their interest in mind, but that's not the way the system is established right now. Yeah, you know, you have been doing, obviously, a lot of press uh, for the book, and as preparing for the interview, I was checking out a few things here and there, and following you on Twitter, really getting a feel for the feedback you've got, too. And it seems like one topic that always keeps coming up is the 1996 NBA draft. I know you talked about how, for you, it was one of the most fascinating uh, things to study and report on for the book. And it's such an interesting thing because you have, you know, Allen Iverson going first overall after a couple years at Georgetown. You also have guys like Steve Nash, you know, in the draft, uh, who played four years of college at Santa Clara. Uh, and then you have the Kobe Bryants, obviously, um, right from high school. I mean, it's such a great mix. It's such an interesting study because there's a little bit of everything in the draft. You know, a Ray Allen who played three years at Connecticut or whatever. Just so many different things. Tell our listeners a little bit about what makes this 1996 draft so fascinating and why you loved reporting uh, this particular topic for the book so much. Yeah, so I grew up a Los Angeles kid, so, you know, I grew up watching Kobe Bryant, and that was a, you know, it's, it's always like, geez, how the heck did he end up with the Lakers? How did 12 teams miss, miss him, and how did he, uh, how did the Hornets wind up trading him for, you know, Vladdy Divac, who was a good center, but who was coming towards the end of his peak in his career? So it was, it was fun to kind of go through team by team and report on, what that team was thinking at the time. And it was like, you know, every single GM had an excuse or even at that time, and they're kind of kicking themselves now. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it seems so ridiculous that Vitaly Potipinko and Todd Fuller and Smokey Walker and Lorenzo Wright were all taken before guys like Kobe, right. before Kobe. And some of these teams had worked Kobe out, but they were kind of hesitant toward taking a high school player. I mean, the Nets worked them out three times and, Seemed dead set on taking him, but John Calipari got scared off at the last minute when Kobe and Arntel and his agent were able to bluff him out of selecting him. So it was just really interesting to go line by line, team by team, seeing how these teams pretty much messed up that draft. And then the other thing, too, was that that was only one year after KG entered the league, so obviously KG wasn't KG yet. And about guys who had made the high school to pro jump before, all of them had been big men. Uh, Moses Malone, uh, Bill Willoughby, Gerald Dawkins, uh, Sean Kemp enrolled in college, but he had never played. So the thinking men was the big men would be able to acclimate to the league just because of their size a lot easier than somebody Kobe's size would be. So that also threw uh, NBA executives off a little bit. How much do you think it was a blessing for Kobe Bryant to end up with a team like the Lakers? I mean, obviously the, the Lakers, just Lakers, is a star, you know, he, it's not like going to, uh, I mean, I guess even the Clippers or the Nets teams that, you know, their histories are complete opposites of the history of a team like the Lakers, you know, and then of course there was other stars on the team and I don't know, it just seems like maybe it was the perfect fit for someone like Kobe Bryant. Like, you know, it just seems like, I wonder if you think it would have been different if he would have been a net or a Clipper or one of these other teams that missed the opportunity to take him or, I mean, are we just talking about, I mean, Kobe Bryant's Kobe Bryant. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's difficult to say, you know, I think the Lakers definitely fit him well. Um, 
to allow him to develop into superstardom. But, you know, I think if he would have ended up with another team, I think he probably would have developed into the same type of player anyways. He's almost yeah. an outlier in this whole process where his dry seed was just so insane and ingrained that he was he'd probably be the same type of player anywhere. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, like, you talk about, you know, when you think about Jordan being the third overall pick, it's like you give the Houston a pass kind of because they got a top 50 player who won two championships there, right? I mean, you never really think of Houston as a team who really screwed up there. You know, you look at the second pick, and it's like in this draft, it's like the 76ers. Well, they got Allen Iverson. I mean, you can you can forgive that in a way. You know, or or a team that drafted Ray Allen, or I mean, there's a little less heat there. But when you talk about those other names, I mean, the names that have long been forgotten, you know, like Kerry Kerry Kittles, you know, with the Nets, who were so close to picking Kobe Bryant. You do a great job, like you said in in, ta- in the book, talking about how close they really were. Um, those are the ones that really hurt. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Nets fans. Come on to the the Wikipedia, the nineteen ninety six draft Wikipedia, and just stare at it every once in a while. Like, oh man, how did this happen? You know, and that's interesting. Yeah, thing. yeah, that's an interesting thing about these drafts. Yeah, and it's tough because you know the executives at that time. You're putting your your reputations and livelihood on the line for a high school kid, and you know it's a tough situation for for them to be in to have. That type of conviction to take a high school kid or or not take a high school kid. Somebody like Jerry West could probably do that and you know still keep going with his legacy. But if you're a guy and you're you know who's on the line to get fired if you mess up this draft, I mean that's a that's a tough position to be in. The sportscaster here with Jonathan Abrams. Uh, he is the author of the book called Book of the Month: Boys Again, Boys Among Men. How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution. It's a New York Times uh, bestselling book, and it's available on Amazon and, of course, uh, in ebook formats, uh, which is awesome as well. You can find him on Twitter. He's at JPD Abrams. Just a couple more questions before I let you go. You know, I've been reading as well The, um, the Arm by Jeff Passan, and uh, a big part of the book is talking about the role that baseball youth baseball plays in the development of pitchers. And you talk about it in the book a bit about the AAU system, the maybe now long criticized to some degree AAU system uh, and its role in this. What do you think about youth basketball and the way we develop players before high school in the United States now? I mean, it doesn't seem like a week goes by without a video popping up in one of my social media feeds, uh, admittedly maybe because they're sons of famous NBA players or something, but it seems like never before have I heard more about 12-year-olds who play basketball than now. Uh, but what do you think in general about the role uh, that youth basketball is playing today in developing uh, future NBA players? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's the best uh, system for 12-year-olds to be ranked you know, as where they are in the country. I don't know how you do that and what type of levels and expectations you're setting up for these guys. You know, I think uh, part of what I reported in the book is how everybody likes to see a prodigy, whether it's an incredible piano player who's a, who's a kid or 
violinist or, or whatever it is, you like to see potential and you like to see prodigy and you like to imagine and envision where these people are going to be years from now. But I do think that it establishes and sets up rough expectations because there's going to be a lot of uh, people who get diverted along that path to start and so many things can happen to shake up that route. And, you know, I just think that it's important for kids to be able to, to develop in, in real time and in, in their time. And that can be lost in the whole process. Did you ever get the sense that LeBron James or Kobe, like LeBron James is always linked to Duke. Uh, did you ever get the, the, the thought that any of these guys really considered college? Uh, uh, do any of them look back and wish they would have went uh, the successful ones at all? Or, is it just generally? I mean, if the if the rule existed that exists now, do you think it would have been better or worse for these guys? Uh, I mean, I think they would have did their year and then gotten on. I do think that there's some guys who kind of miss out on the college experience and wonder what it would have been like. Um, Rashard Lewis had a twin sister who was going through college kind of the same time as he was uh, acclimating to the NBA, so he was. You know, I was wondering what that would be like. And Tracy McGrady talked about how uh, every year at about this time of the year, he kind of felt ostracized because players would be, or teammates would be claiming their colleges, and he'd kind of be out in the corner with nobody to really claim for the tournament. So, you know, I do think there's guys who definitely uh, missed out on that experience, but at the same time, they were able to have success at an earlier age, whether it be on the court or financial, to be able to, you know, be comforted by Maybe we can we can sort of end on this. Uh, I was joking with you before we started rolling about how you are one of the true baby faces of Grantland. Uh, I think Bill Simmons joked about how right before they would run one of your stories, they would laugh about how they'd put it out and, and then enjoy the praise as it came in. Uh, people just loved your pieces, of course. If someone wants to check one out, a great place to start would be to Google the uh, the riot in the... Uh, in Auburn Hills, the the, the running uh, the the retro diary of that oral history is probably the right word. How does uh, putting an article out and um, the immediate feedback you get for something someone can read in an hour? How, how is that compared to the way you've gotten feedback for this book? Uh, something I know you've worked you worked years on um, doing interviews and reporting and. And then finally it comes out and you put it out and and then you wait, right? How do you compare and contrast uh, the work you do for a really famous or popular article on Grantland compared to now a very successful uh, book like A Boys Among Men? It's, it's weird because it's just, you know, magnified a lot more, I would say. Uh, writing a book is really isolating. You're just up against yourself and up against a blank screen every day and you work in it for years and you don't know how it's going to be received or you don't know how it's going to be taken or maybe like a little snippet you see like reported by somebody else that you're like, oh man, I've been sitting on this for this long and this guy got this out there already so you're disappointed. But, you know, I would say that it's, it's, isolate, it's isolating the whole process and then it's kind of scary because you don't know how it's going to be received and you put so much time, energy, and effort into it. But, you know, the response has been really, really great and humbling and gratifying. Um, and, you know, you, you hate the whole process and then you get through it and you can't wait to do it again. Yeah, the book is called Boys Among Men. How 
prep to pro generation redefine the NBA and sparkle or sparked a basketball revolution. The author we've been talking to is Jonathan Abrams. Uh, you can find his book on, of course, Amazon.com. Uh, in bookstores, you can get a beautiful heart cover version of the book. I have one in front of me. Uh, beautiful cover. What do we got? Garnett, Kobe, LeBron on here. Um, you can find that in bookstores. Looks orange. Perfect color, kind of like a basketball. And, of course, you can buy it in ebook format. You can do that uh, through Apple, iBooks, or um, you can get one for the Kindle on Amazon or the Nook version. Of course, you can do that. You can find uh, Jonathan. He's on Twitter. You can find him at JPD Abrams, A-B-R-A-M-S, as well. Anything else uh, plug-wise you wanted to put in there, Jonathan? Anything else you want to mention about the book? or? Uh, no, I think you covered it and did a great job, and I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for being a part of the book club. I uh, really enjoyed the book, and uh, we'll have to have you on sometime just to talk about basketball. Uh, you think the uh, real quick couple? Uh, do you think uh, uh, Golden State's gonna gonna get the record here in the next week or so? I hope so. I mean, I always like seeing uh, records fall, so I hope so. I think they deserve it. They've had an incredible season. It'll be interesting with these Spurs matchups coming soon, but they put themselves in a good place to be able to do it. Yeah, it'll be a really interesting Western Conference playoffs. I mean, it's maybe the best three seed in NBA history with uh, with Oklahoma State, huh? I mean, talk about being an afterthought, but being really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. No, without a doubt. Yeah, it'd be interesting. All right, well, enjoy the playoffs this spring. Enjoy the rest of the book tour. We love the book. Uh, thanks so much, and hopefully we can do it again sometime. Anytime, I appreciate it. All right, I want to thank uh, Jonathan Abrams for being on the podcast today. Uh, as we finish up with his book here in the book club, Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution. Uh, of course, that book is available wherever they sell them. Uh, we're going to move our focus mostly now to the arm inside the billion-dollar mystery of the most valuable commodity in sports uh, by our friend Jeff Basson. This is a book we've been talking about on the show for a long time. And I've been having fun kind of watching Jeff tour for the book a little bit. I read he did an AMA on the baseball subreddit. Um, and I looked through that. And then today he did a Facebook Live thing, which is becoming more and more popular. Okay. And I watched that. It was 15 minutes or so. Kind of like a video version of an AMA, basically. Sure. Uh, so I watched that. And we'll see where Jeff ends up. The book is great. I mean, it's great. He did a great job with it, and it's worth the wait. And Jeff will be in uh, soon to to promote it. Uh, also, one thing I wanted to mention, I mentioned it last week, uh, and it's available now, I'm Your Savior. It's a one-man show by the comedian Jim Florentine. You can get it on his website, jimflorentine.com. And if you enjoy that and you're in the Buffalo or Syracuse area, uh, Jim will be in town August 15th in Buffalo, 16th in Syracuse. And uh, hopefully Jim will be on to talk about that with us. So I'm your savior. It's a $5 download if you want just the media file to watch it on your computer or if you project it to your TV or whatever. Or you can buy a physical copy. And if you buy a physical copy and you're in Buffalo, you can bring it to the show. He'll sign it at the show. Right. Yeah. So he mentioned that. So, jimforentine.com for that. He also uh, launched a new website, 
awfulfacebookpost.com. Oh, yeah. Bring it up real quick. So the gimmick is he sets up like a news reporter and he rips up a Facebook post. So you can play whatever the first one is there. I put it in Google and it didn't immediately come up. Hold on. It's just awfulfacebookpost.com? Yeah. Must be in the dark web. It's not searchable. Awful. That's weird. Yep, awfulfacebookpost.com. I don't know why it wouldn't come on Google. Yeah, I got it now. But, yeah, so there should be a video right at the top there, and you can just play one. Jim have been in a steady relationship for a while now, and I couldn't be happier. Even though I have to share her with other people I know, I have a special place in her heart. No, you don't, dude. It's just a place you go to fucking work out. You're sharing her with every other person, which means everybody is fucking her, if you think about it. Everybody is walking inside of her all day long. If you're okay with that, you must like women who are complete whores. <laughs> so basically, Jim just this is a- has a fake newsroom. Where he has a Facebook post appear above his shoulder like a news report would on TV. And then he slowly drones out why he hates <laughs> the report. Post. Where where does he – can you submit posts to this? Yes, you can. You awesome. can email him, comedymetalmidgets at gmail.com, and maybe your awful Facebook post will appear. If you want to hear him rip up more Facebook posts, he does it every once in a while on his podcast. It's a running theme. No, I gotcha. Awful Facebook posts. So does think they've maybe done nine of them. So you can find those. Comedy Metal Midgets. All right, we're going to take a break. I still don't know as we record if we're going to come back with David Shoemaker, if we're going to do this new thing with Anthony or both or what, but I guess you'll find out now. <laughs> All right, our next guest lives in New York City and is a graduate of Yale University. He's appeared on this podcast as a host and as a guest and is nice enough to join us today as a special golf correspondent exclusive to the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to Anthony Day. What's up, bud? Golf analyst, Steve-O, golf analyst. Steve-O, it's good to be back on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, so. Look, uh, look forward to talking some golf. The thing is, is we can't ask Damon Hack to be on constantly. And I know that there's other people. He's good. I enjoy his stuff. Oh, we he's, love. And he is the, I mean. He's look, the nicest guy, right? If you ask me to make a list of people who just are genuine, nice people, he'd be, if he wouldn't be the top guy, he'd be the second. I follow him on Instagram and he's always like with his kids. He's, yeah, he's seems got like triplets. A, he's a, a really fun dad. Yeah, triplets, and they... Yeah, they, right, right. They're take, always traveling, yeah. They've taken to golf, so he's got that with them. He enjoys, you know, golfing with them, and um, he's a great guy, and we'll have him on for sure, but I wanted to, especially in the summer when there's less to talk about this year, I wanted to be able to spend a little bit more time on golf and the majors, so I wanted to get you in uh, during the tournaments, and we'll have Damon on once or twice over the summer, but we'll do it after the tournaments, and... Um, 
Anthony will fill in, and maybe we'll try some other people. We'll try Shipnook maybe at one point this year. He wrote a really great piece on Tiger Woods. I don't know if you read it in SI. I sent you. Oh my link. god, yeah, it was wild. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, really, it's just crazy. He did a really good job, like separating it by like time periods. It was really well done. Yeah, so we'll have to get Allen on at some point this year. And but I don't know. It's just who would you if you had if I said all right, book a golf show. Who would be the three people you'd want to get on as guests? Um, Not okay. players, obviously, because we really yeah, don't yeah, do no, that. I know. Yeah. I watch it off Golf Channel. Um, I think Brandel Chambly does the best job on the Golf Channel. Um, former player and just very like analytical in the way he talks about it. He takes it very seriously. He like always references like Bobby Jones. It's kind of he's like a historian, but also very technical in the way he um, analyzes players. So he's my favorite. Um, I think you got to have Faraday for some color. Hmm. Um, and it's probably just because I listen to him all day today. I, I kind of like Vern Lundquist, even though he's not really an analyst. Oh, but I'd love to have Lundquist. I'd have him on any time. Yeah, just so I could hear the stories more from Augusta. I wouldn't ask him to come on before, you know, if the U.S. Yeah. Open. Yeah, but he's just, a guy you just want to get on just to let him talk. Tell me about yeah. 16 at Augusta. Yeah, yeah I mean, he talk. sat there for 40 yeah. years, so that's... That I think that's my three. Yeah, that'd be amazing. That'd be a dream one. Did you enjoy the documentary on Golf Channel that I know we both watched about Nicholas in '86? Yeah, I mean, I can't get enough really of watching stuff like that of the older guys and and Nicholas. I mean, I know I know the story, and it's just really cool to hear him like actually talk about it because you never really you kind of hear him mention it in the like, interview, but to hear him like sit down and talk about you know the holes in the back nine, hole by hole, and like what he was thinking. Um, they do golf channel kills it, man. They have, they do a lot of great stuff. Like I always thought when it was obvious that tiger wouldn't catch Nicholas, that he would have an 86 like tournament at some point. And I know he's still young enough to do it, but certainly his body isn't holding up. And I think for the first time I'm starting to kind of figure he's just too broken down and probably too rich to hmm. ever really get to that point. So I'm going to – I think for the first time ever, I kind of feel like that's as many majors as he's going to win. Yeah, I still think he can do it at Augusta especially. If I mean, if it, if it wasn't always held the same course and he knew what he was going to get himself into every year, I'd say no. Like I don't think he'll ever win a U.S. Open again because if his game's not on, he do, he can't fall back on just the familiarity of Augusta. You know, it's a new course, different year. So I, I do think he can make some runs at Augusta still, but I do not like. I, I don't think he'll win another major other than a, an Augusta, a Masters uh, championship. I don't think he'll win it, you know, British or U.S. Open. I don't think he can do that now. But I think if his game just clicks for a little bit and just knowing Augusta the way he does, I think he can have a weekend like that for sure. Well, for the last ten years now, the winner of this tournament has been in the top ten. After the first day. So the first day is over as we talk, and we have a top 10. And really for the second or third year in a row, the field is chasing Spieth. Yeah. It's actually he's led five of the last six rounds going back to 14 because he was leading going into Sunday. So he led Saturday, lost Sunday, and then five straight since then. Yeah, so, I mean, the field is chasing him again, and he hasn't played that well yet this year. Uh, you know, again, I don't think that matters though. I think that, you know, I think that golfers play to win majors and after the year he had, I kind of expected him 
to maybe I even thought that maybe it wouldn't be till summer where he'd really settle back in to playing at the level he was last year. But after one round at Augusta, he seemed to find his way. What is it about his game? I mean, besides the fact that he's maybe clearly the best in the world at this point, but what is it about his game specifically that matches up with this course so well? Uh, it's his putting, 100%. I mean, he's the best putter um, from 15 to 20 feet in the world. Even further than that, 25 feet, he's the best in the world by a wide margin, like 20%. So at Augusta, those greens, you're not going to hit a lot of shots within you know, the 10-foot comfort zone for those pros. So to be able to be confident over 25-footer and know that you're the best in the world by a wide margin, that separates him from... You know, Jason Day, who hits at 330, Royal McIlroy, who was hitting six irons in a par fives. That's the difference because he knows he doesn't need to get that long off the tee. He's more controlled. He's in the fairway. It's just it just goes top to bottom. When you go when you start putting, it just trickles down throughout your whole game. And just knowing that you can make 25 footers, you know, three, four times around, that makes it a lot easier. You're not chasing flags. It just, you know, when you're rolling on the greens, it just makes everything else easier. Let's talk about Jason Day for a second because he started off super hot. I think he was minus four after like six holes. Yeah. And then he gave the four shots back and he's at even. Uh, but I think if there's anyone outside of the top ten that I would most likely think could break that ten-year stat, it's still got to be him, right? Has to be him. I mean, he has so much firepower. Um, got a little loose there on the back, but, I mean, that happens, you know. And just uh, he's. I listened to his post-game interview or post-round interview, but – he, uh, he said, you know, if I would have shot 41 on the front and then shot the 30, whatever, what did he shoot on the front? 31. So he went 31-41. And he's like, if I would have shot 41 on the front and 31 on the back, I'd be a hero. Right. And he's like, it's just it's just numbers. So, like, looking at that from that way, if I could just find a way to eliminate those four holes in the back and just keep rolling, I mean, he had it to five under. I mean, he shot 31. Right. And he, so, I mean, he and, he and he messed up on the holes where they're scoring holes. So, if he, I mean, if he even just flips it a little bit, that could go from a bogey to a birdie. I mean, those were holes that he should take advantage of. So he knows he gave a couple away, but he knows that he's got the firepower to, to catch up, no problem. And his game is set up to score. So, like you said, yes. he can definitely make a run. What else in the top ten? Who are some other guys you were impressed with today? <laughs> Uh, besides Spieth, besides Day, who are some guys you see on the leaderboard? You think? Well, I mean, how do you not? How do you not look at Justin Rose? I mean, guy shot yeah three 14, back. Yep, guy shot fourteen under last year in the Masters. He he has shot the seventh lowest eighteen or seventeen hole score in Masters history. Just think about that. There's only six guys ever who have beat his score last year, and he didn't win. I mean, he's done really well there. Um, probably one of the best iron players in the world. So. Um, you know, he can really make a run if he gets hot. Um, I do have Danny Lee for the record, 140 to one. So put that one in the back pocket just for everyone out there. Let's go Danny Lee. Um, he's a really good young player. Um, who's kind of, kind of cocky. He, he had a good interview after and he just seemed like he really didn't give a hoot about what was going on. It was kind of funny. He was like, yeah, made this putt. No one really clapped. (laughs) He was just just like, whatever. I'm just out there playing golf. So. Um, but I would say Justin Rose is a legitimate contender. I mean, him being three back, he's not worried at all. He just knows he's got to go out there and keep doing it. Do you think uh, Mickelson can make a run at this at all? Yes, yes. I I, I like Mickelson coming into the week. Um, I saw 
whenever he has the lowest scoring average on tour this year. He's actually been playing unreal. It's the best he's ever been coming into Augusta in a long time. And whenever his scoring average is below 70 coming into Augusta, he's won that year. So it just shows that coming into good form and going to a course he's won three times at, you know, he can he can, he can light it up if he gets it going. I mean, it's just like everyone. If you get it going at this course, you know, it make, makes people look bad a lot. But if you're hitting it, you can really score. Will the weather be a factor this weekend? Yeah, it's going to be windy. Um, and I've been lucky enough to go the last two years. And when it gets windy, you don't really realize on TV, but Augusta is massive. The slopes, the cont I mean, it is literally a massive piece of property, and you don't really realize, realize it on TV, and that's what I was blown away when I saw it in person. So some of these shots, you know, it could be dead downwind right where you feel, but end up not being once it gets out of the trees. It's wild the way the wind goes around. Um, and you see how Amen Corner goes on a normal year just because that's the way it is. But when you add wind to every hole, it's, it's going to put a lot of pressure on them. Three years ago, we probably thought that Rory McIlroy We'd be talking about him the way that we've been talking about Spieth. Uh, McIlroy yeah. is tied for ninth. He's in the hunt. He's minus two. Uh, do you look at him as a threat over the last couple days of the tournament this weekend? Yeah, he did the same thing as day to day. He had it really. He was you know four under standing on sixteen t. You know he's hitting eight iron. You know you got to think he's thinking in the back of his head. I can you know I can get two out of three here and finish tied for the lead. And he. Just pulls an eight iron, just an, a bad mistake. Ends up making bogey, and bogeys one more, and ends up shooting seventy. You know, he thought I can get it to six, and he ends up at two. That's he said that was very disappointing. But again, like he hit it just as good as Jason Day. They just kind of had a couple hiccups coming in, so you just got to know guys of that caliber can just kind of put that away and just. You know, Rory said he'd take a seventy when you when he stepped in the first tee, he would have taken it. So he, they know how hard is going to get, and I think they're confident knowing that the best player in the world is going to be able to really separate themselves in the conditions they think they're going to get. Well, it's perfect for golf. I mean, they have the top star in the game right now at the top of the leaderboard, and the whole weekend is going to be about trying to chase him down and uh, whether anyone can do it. And I'm sure there'll be big names on Sunday, and another big name um, that often is prominent in these tournaments, although doesn't win them, is Sergio Garcia, and he's tied for fourth at three under. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Sergio. I, I love the way he grinds. I know he's got a lot of, you know, haters out there, kind of, but I mean, just the way that guy just keeps grinding, and he always hears, you have, you don't haven't won a major, you won't win a major, you're the best without one. Like, yeah, that has to that has to wear on him. So for him to like constantly, especially the last couple of years, he's really been playing well. To contend in these majors, just with that always in the back of your mind, I just kind of tip my cap to him because that that's a lot to hear, and he's heard it for a long time. So for him to come out and get a start like that, I respect it. And he's got the game. It's just kind of getting over that hump, and it's it's been you know 15 years they've been saying that probably about him. Sportscasters are here with Anthony Day, our exclusive golf correspondent and analyst. We're talking here about the Masters. You know, for the last three years during Masters weekend, you've either been winning the national championship or at the <laughs> Masters. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell do you do when that run ends? Oh, man. So today I'm at work. And I'm just like, Blow wow. Hookers this, what? <laughs> this is just, it's, it's, it's odd not being there. That's and a drop off. Yeah. Tell me about it. And it's actually odd watching it on TV, you know, because now it's like I, you know, being there the last two years, I like I know a lot of the places now, and it's like, kind of cool to see it back on TV. Um, but yeah, that's a hell of a three-year run. I really didn't think about that, but yeah, I mean, fuck. I mean, it's hard to keep up that pace, I guess. Quinnipiac has already won the first game of the Frozen Four. They'll play Denver 
or North Dakota for the national championship. I would love to be able to say that the ECAC has won three of the last four national championships, <laughs> but I don't know if I want to say that as much as I want to say that Quinnipiac didn't win again. So I, th- I think I would rather have two of the last four. You'd rather have two of the last four and have them Absolutely. be over two in the championship games. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way too. They're just there's just something about the arrogance of them that's just so yeah. off putting. Because uh, yeah. I mean, I was all for Union. I mean, love Union. They and, they play the right way. Yeah, and, and I don't dislike Quinnipiac in the same way that I dislike Harvard. It's not necessarily a, a Yale thing to me. It's not just uh, an unlikable thing to me. And um, you know, because I don't think Harvard is as unlikable as Quinnipiac. They're just Harvard, so fuck them. But right. I don't know. That's just the way I've kind of felt about it. But I know it was a great game, and it, it's a great tournament. I was arguing with Mike Harrington and a few other people who had this ridiculous take that they should play like on Tuesday or Thursday, so or Tuesday and Wednesday the regionals, so that they don't get covered up by the NCAA tournament. And I just, I, I just, uh, I just didn't see it because I, I think. People who want to watch it, watch it anyway. I don't think they're actually losing people to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I don't think there's like fringe fans who are going to choose between it. And it's a you t- know, I don't I don't think they're like going out there trying to vie for more you know market share. I think the hockey people will watch the the Frozen Four. Man, it's such a two screen world now too. Uh, That's true. That is you, true. Three years have passed since you've won this, and I just want to like when you look back. There's some obvious things that I'm sure stick out, but like, what do you think of that? we might not think of like when you look back at this and it's been three years now. And I mean, all of the players who played for Yale and our national champions are no longer Yale hockey players now. So like with that time past, like when you look back, what do you think about most besides, you know, I don't know, celebrating with Kenny or me or, you know, the most obvious things besides that. That's a good question. Um, I think the thing I think about like, strictly game like in the actual game that i remember is like having my helmet off and being actually like on the ice with like five seconds left mm-hmm. and like that's just kind of like i don't know how like that just the only way to be on the ice with your with no helmet with five seconds left just because you're just so excited it's so, like the fact that i like jumped over the boards when there's like that's a lot of time to like be over the boards without a helmet it just like shows us how fired up we were um but just, I guess, over time, the more people I meet, and now that I'm out of school, I think it's just, you don't realize how many people, like, were actually, like, pulling for you and were, like, dialed in that whole run and and how are, like, you know, they love saying, yeah, like, yeah, hockey won a championship. It's, like, the alumni aspect and more, like, you don't realize, I guess, when you're there and on campus how many people actually outside of campus care and, like, are so proud to say that that happened. Yeah, and it was. I mean, it was cool to do it for the first time. Obviously, at a school like that. I mean, to do anything for the first time at a school like that—that's pretty cool. And you know, one of your favorite videos is the video of the Yale club watching the semifinal overtime uh, and the reaction to Andrew Miller's goal in overtime. And I was just curious: Have you, as a member of the Yale club now, and, and probably mingling with people there, have you met anyone who was in that video watching? You know, I met someone who was there for the final because they had a huge party. And uh-huh. now that I've I've been there, you know, multiple times now that I'm in the city, I, I see the room that they're at and it's massive. So it's, it's it was cool. I, I haven't met a guy who was there for the semi game though, because um, if you look on that video, it's really not that full. I mean, it's a Thursday. I think we right, were yeah, the first game, yeah, right? The first game. It's probably six. So, I mean, it was time. probably five o'clock. People are still at work, so like the semi game 
you know, I don't think there is a lot of people, but he said the finals, it was crazy. That's, I mean, that's Saturday night, you know? The one thing I noticed that um, I didn't think of is what a draw your ring is. Like, I remember at graduation weekend, we were walking around uh, at the athletic banquet or something like that, and you had your ring on. You don't wear it often, but you had it on. I remember we were just kind of walking around, and anyone that you walked up to, like, there's just people noticing it, talking to you about it. Uh, we were standing at, you were standing at one table. I was standing a little bit behind you, and you were talking to s- some parents of friends or something and a few people, and you guys were talking about the ring. And I was watching everyone behind those people that were at the table, and they were all just talking about the ring. And it's like, it's, it's amazing what a draw something like that is. I, I guess that never, never really occurred to me beforehand, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I just also don't, I don't think anyone ever really saw it because, I mean, we're not the guys to, like, wear that around. Like, I don't think – I think that was the first time I wore it was for graduation. Um, like, actually out in public, I think. That's the first time I wore it. So I don't think people even had the opportunity to really see it. Like, I doubt there was even, like, a photo release like they do in the NHL and stuff. So, like, to actually see the size and – I mean, it, it was really cool. The first time I saw it, I couldn't believe it. So I think just people, like, really never – saw it or didn't really realize that we actually got something like that all right well you can follow, let's get you tweeting this weekend because people are going to hear this and i want you to make some observations on twitter yeah i know i'll, I'll dial the in tournament. the you, second round you yeah can for find sure. anthony he's at dazer with three r's so <laughs> d-a-y-z-e-r-r-r on twitter you can find him there we're gonna get him tweeting about the golf this weekend and maybe a few comments about the national championship game as well on saturday in hockey uh, so I think that's all I had on my agenda. Anything else you want to talk about before we let you go till the next time we talk to you? Uh, no, I mean, just enjoy it. It's the best weekend of the year. So just sit back and listen to Jim Nance. And you see this, by the way, you see a story about Jim Nance's ties. I you saw a story this? about it's Jim Nance's toast. I don't think I saw anything about his ties. So I guess after every national championship game, he gives the player he thinks was the best on the winning team his tie like takes off his tie oh i did hear something about him giving it to someone i didn't know that was an annual tradition <laughs> yeah like what's what, what's that about just making up his own trophy like <laughs> yeah, oh know. yeah i just won it all but oh man i got nance's tie like nance i love you to death but come on well stop nance, the ties. nance is self-important i mean oh my god he's, evident it's the, it's in the, the nance show yeah, yeah it's not the masters evidence yeah. in the toast story I mean, did the you toast is, yeah, yeah. That's, that's wild. Yeah. He, he says he's lost like a year of his life waiting for people to burn his toast more. Nance, be more Nance. That's like, yeah. Ugh. So he is. That's part of his gimmick, and he lives his I know. gimmick, and, and I think that's what's enjoyable yeah. about him. I mean, yeah. he is a hundred percent Nance at a hundred percent of the time. So yeah, other than that, just enjoy it. I think it's going to be a hell of a weekend. I really think it's going to be one of those shootouts with the best players. So I think uh, you know we're lucky. You know, everyone says Tiger, 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 but I honestly don't even think about him anymore it's we're it's so much fun watching these guys so just enjoy it all right man talk to you soon all right bro all right i want to thank jonathan abrams my brother, David Schumacher, whoever actually appeared on this <laughs> podcast, for being on. Don't forget, you can find this week's podcast. And last week's we had interviews with Matt Crossman and uh, Ryan Aber on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also email us 
thesportscasters at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at sports underscore casters or at Don Lake Sports. And that should cover it. That's all the all the plugs. We're we're not good at that. It's a weakness. No. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, what's I always thought, what's the strengths and weaknesses of the podcast? And the first weakness that comes to mind is self promotion. They say our name sometimes <laughs> doesn't happen. We never do it. All right. Uh one last thing for me this week. Um I talked about how I have some nerdy habits and that, and one of them being kind of video games. I'm not a huge gamer. Like, I don't own every system. I've owned like every other Nintendo system. I've only owned a PS2 and a PS3, and I don't own any current-gen systems. But I always would kind of consider myself more of a PC gamer, uh, and it sucks. And I understand why people jump to consoles, and that is I'm going to have to take the laptop home that I use for the podcast and probably just format it and start over because I've troubleshooted everything I possibly could, and I had a problem appear out of nowhere where Steam, if you know what PC games are, you probably use Steam. It's a video game like platform to download games. Uh, just started, if I start downloading a game through Steam, it freezes, it kicks me off the internet. Uh, if I start it in safe mode, it works. So there's something between safe mode and regular Windows, it's causing it to jack up. I can't figure out what it is, so I basically have to hit the reset button on my entire computer and start troubleshooting that way. But yeah, I get it. If you would much rather drop 400 bucks every, whatever it is, five years on a console, I totally get it because all you want to do is put the CD or DVD in and have it play. I, I totally get, after fighting with this crap for about a week now, drivers suck. Like, figuring out drivers and... Ugh. I could just never get comfortable with anything but a controller. And I know that there are PC controllers, but... Yeah, you know what the best PC controller is, is the Xbox 360 controller. Because right. it's a USB controller. It's what most people use. I don't actually have them, but I'm, that'll be the next one I get. And like first-person shooters, I just... Uh, the mouse is the most accurate way to Yeah, do I could just never do that. I just would never be good at it. Yeah, were you into shooters anyway, though? Like a lot of people that are... I don't know how. Yeah. I mean, I like to shoot guys and stuff, but I could never be good at it. Yeah. I, I remember way back when, this was kind of like a point of pride for like, PC gamers. Yeah, I like Contra <laughs> too. But they said they kind of had PC gamers play against console gamers, and the PC gamers using the mice, it was just so much more Right, precise. and that makes sense. Uh, what, what's... I mean, another thing is, like, I never really wanted to sit on my computer while I play games. I'd much rather, like, yeah. get a video game chair. And they have stuff for that now, too. Like, Steam has a thing called, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a Steam in-home box that'll, like, send it to your TV. Now, I don't know how good that works for, like, online gaming because of, like, lag or whatever, but they do have things. And, I mean, you could plug your laptop into your TV through a Is honestly USB the biggest reason you, like... PC HMI. gaming more because you can much easily pirate the games for free. No, because like the Wii was super. Like the original Wii was really easy to download games for. Dreamcast was really easy. Uh, I've pirated much, much, much less PC games. Really? Lately. Yeah. Uh, I think it's exclusives. Like my favorite games are only available for the PC. Like TF2, I think may have come out for consoles, but it just didn't have like a following. It. The following was on here. That's the reason I like Nintendo. Like I, I recognize that it power wise, it's almost always the weakest system. But like but you buy exclusives Steam? are awesome. Steam is like uh, it's like iTunes, but for video games. So you have Steam on there, and then they have like it's like a marketplace where you can buy games from there, and they have great sales and stuff like that. Like people have uh, 
Greg got in. My brother got into it for a little bit, where he's probably got 200 games on his computer and he probably hasn't played 150 of them because like the Steam sales are so good and you can get the game so cheap. But if you're willing to wait a little bit, well, it's a big weekend for rock and roll. Um, sure, I guess. <laughs> well, there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is a okay. Oh, I thing, know what you're going right. With, I right? mean, yep. so we talked about it. It's it's a weaker. A weekish Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class. Yeah, for my money, yeah. NWA, Cheap Trick, Steve Miller Band, Chicago. Um, Brent Burns or something like that. I might be mistaken the hockey player name. but Yeah, but it's it's a weakish class. Yeah. Um, and that'll happen in, in – it's in New York this year, I believe. Uh, we all know it's just, a, it's just a year that we wait for next year when the Mighty Pearl Jam will take their rightful place among – the greats of rock and roll and the Rocky Hall, oh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's something they're kind of into, at least judging by the inductions they've done. Yeah, they've done a ton of them. Yeah, so. Um, so Pearl Jam will be in next year. They'll also start their tour this weekend Yeah, down in Florida. So I saw that they had the arena set up. I'm sure they'll rehearse tonight. Is it tomorrow, the 8th? Tomorrow they start. Yeah. So they'll be down in Florida. And for the first time... In 25 years, uh, Guns N' Roses will play an arena together. Um, they played last Friday or Saturday. I can't remember what night it was. I think Friday. They played at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, uh, which is a really small club. A couple hundred people came in. Uh, some celebrities. Jim Carrey was there. Andrew Dice Clay. Oh, Kate, yeah. Kate Hudson. Bradley Cooper. Um. And Guns N' Roses with Axel, Slash, and Duff played. Uh, allegedly, Steven Adler was supposed to be part of it, but he was maybe injured. Um, and Izzy is MA at this point. Hmm. So they will start the official. That was a warm-up show, kind of quiet. They didn't announce it until that day. Obviously, only a couple hundred people in there. Somehow everybody knew about it, though. So, well, I say well, everybody, but your buddy's like the biggest GNR. They announced it. Oh, okay. You know, Just, it wasn't like under an, an assumed name or anything. Okay. That morning, they said, oh, that morning, we're gotcha. playing tonight at the Troubadour. Gotcha. Come to where Towers Record used to be and get tickets. There was rumors. So, I mean, if you waited for them to announce it, you weren't going to get in the line in a position to get a ticket. I'm a Guns N' Roses fan as much as anybody was a Guns N' Roses fan when they were the biggest band in the world. But that's about where it stops for me. But uh, that said, Axl Rose had become like a punchline for a few years when he was touring as Guns N' Roses, but it was essentially just him. And like he didn't sound great and all that. But I saw a bootleg of – he sounded awesome. Like yeah, He well, sounded really good. I think you could accuse Axl of maybe during the period of inactivity with Slash as mailing it in occasionally. Sure, but he sounded great. But as I told Steve Hyden a few months ago, there's no way that Axl Rose was going to come out and do these shows fat and not ready. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is all eyes on Axl Rose. This is not a band that he can travel almost anonymously around the sure. country in. Buckethead and This is yeah. I mean these are shows that they're selling out. They're going to they announced a stadium tour this week. I mean they're going to play stadiums. Yeah. And Axl Rose is not going to come out fat and not ready to I don't go even out. care about the fat thing. I had heard in some clips of him before and they weren't good. I mean th- he sounded like he did in the late 80s. His voice fatigues over the course of the show. I imagine the songs are hard to they sing. Have. And he goes hard. He doesn't stand there. Yeah, it was good. Uh, but the stadium tour was announced. Uh, I'm going to have to go to one. I don't know if it's Toronto or Pittsburgh or 
Detroit. I don't know. They're but I'm going to have to try they? to find one. I thought Toronto was already on sale. Yeah, the tickets are on sale, but there's, there's stadium shows. You can get in any stadium show. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. I'm glad they're playing shows again. I'm not really, I guess maybe being a Pearl Jam fan, the drummer thing doesn't move me much. <laughs> Whether it's Steven Adler or Matt Sorum or the guy that's been in for the last 10 years, I, I don't care. What about the female I, I keyboard love, player? I People love, are bad of shape about that too. Yeah, but they hated the other one, Pittman. Oh, really? So I don't know why anyone would care. I don't know why they need two. You'd think Dizzy Reed would be enough, but mm. for whatever reason, they have two. That's what Axel wants, I guess. So they have two. I don't care who they are. Sure. Um, and yeah, it'd be great to have Izzy, but as I kind of predicted... As he's lived the last 15 years of his life. I don't think it means it's out. I just think it means he'll be there when he feels like it. It might be one show. might be none. It might be five. But he just doesn't adhere to a schedule. He's like the Brock Lesnar of (laughs) uh, music. He'll show up when he wants to show up, whatever that might be. I don't think you ever have to say, oh, well, Izzy's out. I don't think it's that. He's just not going to be there regularly. And, you know, we'll hear about this summer. There'll be a Thursday show in Detroit, and you'll find out the next day that Izzy decided to show up to that one. And he played the whole show or part of the show or whatever. Because I think when it comes to Guns N' Roses, Izzy can do whatever it is or whatever it is he doesn't want to do. So I'm excited for it. So it's a big weekend for rock and roll. Pearl Jam starting their tour. Guns N' Roses is reuniting. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is inducting a weakish class.